Well, I invite you this morning to return with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be in Romans. We're going to be in and around Romans 7. Look a little bit at Galatians. Just to give you an idea where we're going, I want to address the question, who is the wretched man of Romans 7? It is a question that has been asked all throughout church history. And uh, while it may not matter to you most days, to go through the book of Romans, a person, a preacher especially, has to answer this question for themselves. So we'll be looking at the whole paragraph 7, 13 through 25, but really an overview of it, mostly at 13 and then looking through the rest of the passage. Now, I want to warn you, this is more of a lerman, what Abner Chow calls a lerman. That's a lecture and a sermon, half and half probably mixed in together. There is much to cover here, and we're going to look at hermeneutics. We're going to look at exegesis. We're going to look at this passage and see who really is this wretched man. And that will help us to see what Paul is trying to do with this passage. And then in the following couple of sermons on this passage, I'll go through verse by verse. So this is sort of expository and sort of theological, exegetical today. Let's read the passage, Romans 7, 13 through 25, and see if you can just figure out by reading who is the wretched man of this passage. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin working out my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. For what I am working out, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death or the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind, am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. You can see the struggle there. You can see the issue with the passage. Who and in what state is this person that Paul is talking about? He's a wretched man, Paul says. There's despair. There's a struggle here. And there's a struggle over the interpretation of this passage for 2,000 years. Many have wrestled with, debated the interpretation of this passage. James Montgomery Boyce said, There are few passages in the Bible over which competent Bible students have divided more radically than the last half of Romans 7, beginning with verse 14. So here's the question. Is Paul here speaking of a believer or an unbeliever? Now, some will debate if this is even Paul. I think it's Paul. He says, I. He puts it in the present tense. He uses the word I. I think it's Paul. 
And I definitely think there's a struggle going on here. But the question is, is this the unbeliever's struggle with the law or the believer's struggle with the law? Is this a question of sanctification that would be with a believer or a question of the law convicting them of their sin? That would be for the unbeliever. Is he regenerate or unregenerate is another way to put it. Is Paul writing about himself as an unbeliever before being regenerated or as a believing Christian struggling with indwelling sin? So I'm going to give you the two different views, the regenerate and the unregenerate. And I want to just give you a brief survey of church history and who believes which view. Some believe, of course, as I said, that Paul is regenerated here. That would include the older Augustine, not the younger. Younger Augustine falls on the other view. This is the believing Paul here being described. Older Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, Luther, Calvin, John Owen, Charles Hodge, John Murray, and most Reformed pastors of today, including some of yours and my favorite preachers. So who in the world wants to disagree with that list? We can disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, but John Owen, Calvin, our favorite Reformed preachers. Well, there are some who take the other view, the unregenerate, unbelieving Paul is being described here. This was the view of the early church for the first 300 years until Augustine. Then men like Chrysostom thought that this was the unbeliever. The younger Augustine, as I mentioned, John Wesley, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and some heavyweight commentaries that have come out recently like Tom Schreiner, Reformed Baptist, and Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo is an exegetical heavyweight. Not only is his actual commentary a heavyweight, and you could block the door with it, but he is very serious about doing exegesis with this passage. So many people would just pick their favorite pastor or theologian. Before I went to seminary, I didn't really have the tools to study. I didn't know really what I was doing with the Bible. And uh, that's exactly what I did. Whoever my favorite preacher, my favorite reform guy is, that's how I'm going to decide. But that's not a good way to interpret a passage. When I got to seminary, I had professors that took different views on this. At the master's seminary, I had the guy that taught John MacArthur hermeneutics and Dr. Roscup, and I had him for hermeneutics, and he said, well, this is the believer. This is the Christian struggle, and you can find that in his commentary where he goes through different prayers in the Bible. Then I had Dr. Michael Vlock, a great theologian, top-notch, both of these guys. Dr. Vlock sat me down, and he showed me his view of how this is an unbeliever, and he went through the context and showed me these different things. And so your job today is to hear the sermon and be good Bereans. Unlike me, you don't really have to choose a view if you don't want, but I recommend that you be a good Berean, that you work through Scripture. And this is not some major doctrinal issue. It's not a salvation issue. You've probably never heard of the unregenerate Romans 7 First Baptist Church. You've probably never heard of the regenerate Paul in Romans 7 Presbyterian denomination of Scotland. Churches aren't started over this. Churches aren't dividing over this. In a room like this, we would have different people viewing this differently. There are some other views, by the way. I didn't even go into the third view, which is always the easy view for scholars. It's both. It's just the human under the law. Then there's all kinds of variations for the believer, the believing Paul. There's the immature believer, the new believer, or all believers. For the unregenerate Paul, there's the young man who learns the law and is convicted by it. There's the person who gets convicted right before he's saved. And there's all kinds of variations on these. So let's remember, no matter what side that we fall on, or our friends fall on, or our pastors, or our theologians fall on, show grace to one another, because this is not a major doctrinal issue. In fact, I don't even think it's in our statement of doctrine that we have that's 18 pages long. So it's an interpretation of the passage. We all must look at it and try to come to some conclusions. 
So let's first of all look at reasons people take the passage as referring to the believer as Paul's Christian struggle here. Paul's Christian struggle. And so the view is that this is a believer. Number one, the change from the past tense to the present tense. You notice that when I read it. He has been talking in the past about himself. And now suddenly he switches to the present tense and he uses the word I quite a bit. I, I am fleshly. I am I'm working out certain things. I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So it's a very strong argument because there's a huge shift in the verb tenses here. And not just a few of them, all of them switch to the present tense. Secondly, verse 22, verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Can an unbeliever really say that? That would be the the point here. Can an unbeliever really say they joyfully, I mean, joyfully concur with the law of God in this inner man? The inner man used two other times in the New Testament, referring to something to do with the reference to a believer. Thirdly, the third argument, you can come up with hundreds of arguments if you wanted. I'm just summarizing the, the best five. Number three, this does not match up with what Paul says about himself in Philippians 3. If this is an unbeliever, then in Philippians 3, you know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He did all these things well. He obeyed the law He did all of these wonderful things as an unbeliever. How can he now describe this sort of struggle that he's having with the law? The fourth argument, this passage seems to sound like the Christian's experience with sanctification. Anybody who struggled with sin as a Christian should look at this and wonder, is he talking about himself here as a Christian? Because sometimes some of these verses really sound like my struggle with sin. I want to do good, but it's it's so hard. I don't always do good. Don't always do the thing that God commands me to do. And then number five, he calls out thanks to the Lord in verse 25. Who will deliver me from this body, the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's talking there about salvation, maybe salvation. So these are five really good arguments. These are arguments from godly men. And while they are good arguments to consider, the weight of my Reformed brethren are holding this view, I think there are better reasons for taking the unregenerate, unbelieving view here of Paul in this passage. I think there are better reasons. I want to work through those with you. There's five as well. I wanted to try to balance these out, not to try to give 10 and five or something like that. We'll come back to those five here at the end. And I think any good view ought to be able to answer the objections from the other side. You can't just show up and and have all of your views and not answer the objections that the other side poses. So let me give you five reasons. First of all, five reasons why I think Romans 7, 13 through 25 is about Paul as an unbeliever. And I'll come back, as I said, to answer the objections. First of all, the preceding, preceding immediate context, preceding immediate context of Romans 6 and 7. Neither side really does a good job, I think, of getting into the context. I went through yesterday because, because this was my view when I wrote the paper that I wrote in seminary. All these years have passed. I went yesterday and I listened to both sides, but really tried to focus on the believing view. And I listened to all these sermons and read all these commentaries to see if, if they could convince me one more time. There's no discussion of the context in either position. And we need to take into consideration the context. The preceding immediate context. Let's go back to chapter 6. Since chapter 6, Paul has been asking questions. He's been asking questions. This doctrine of justification is something new. And it brings up a lot of questions to the, the believer who's reading Romans, to the Jew, 
to the unbelieving Jew who's questioning Paul's gospel. And so what he does here is he brings up a question and then he answers it. And then he brings up another question and he answers it. And he brings up another question and he does this four times in chapters 6 and 7. And what he's doing in chapter 6 is discussing the result of justification. That's your sanctification. That's your struggle there with the doing of the good. But then in 7 now, he moves away from that. And he's talking about defending the law. The law is good. The commandment is holy. The law is righteous. But back to this four question answer groupings. Looking at the immediate context building up to chapter 7 and verse 13. Let's start with 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Okay, grace has come in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We can be forgiven of our sins. He died for us on the cross. He propitiated the wrath of God. He satisfied everything for us that is needed for salvation. He paid the atonement. Our sins are forgiven. And now what that has done for us is given us God's grace. We're under grace now. And the question arises, are we to continue in sin? If it, if it makes God look good, because when we sin, he shows us more grace, and that makes him look so wonderful, can we continue in this sin just to make God look good? And Paul says, may it never be. Right away, he just answers many of these questions with, may it never, ever, ever, ever be that you would continue in sin for that excuse, that reason. And 2 through 14 now of chapter 6, he explains that more fully. And by verse 14, look where he ends. You are not under law, but under grace. That's where he finishes answering that question. You're under grace now. You're not under the Mosaic law. You don't have the law on top of you pushing you down and you're trying to strive against it. You're under God's grace. Now he brings up the next question in verse 15. And look at verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. So it's a little different question. Here is, okay, we're not under the Mosaic law. So are we just free to go and do whatever we want? Can we just do whatever we want? Like there's no commands in the New Testament that Christ gave. Paul says, may it never be. It's not possible. Never, ever, ever, God forbid that that would happen. Now he answers the question more fully in verses 16 all the way through 23. Won't read through that, but anytime later, you can go back and, and read these chapters if you haven't been with us or I've forgotten the context here. So he provides the full answer there. Now, chapter 7, he does it again. He begins to deal directly with the questions about the law. 7-1, or do you not know brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. These are people who knew the Mosaic law. And Gentiles would know it because they could read their Old Testament in Greek, especially Christian Gentiles. And he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. That the law is master over a person as long as he lives. What Paul's getting at here is, don't you know the Bible? Don't you know, reader, who knows the scriptures, the Old Testament, that you've died to the Mosaic law? That this new covenant that's come in with Christ has made you die to the law. You're dead to it. The law is not dead, but you're dead to it. And in 7 Verses 2 through 12, chapter 7, verses 2 through 12, he gives the, the more full answer here. Look at 4 through 12, because this is building up to verse 13. So my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to 
to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he's really, he's still working under that question in, in 7 1. He's just now continuing on with that discussion. Is the law sin? May it never be. Brother, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me. So now he's talking personally. He's, he's focusing on himself as an unbeliever. Almost all people agree that, that study this passage that here at least he's talking about himself as an unbeliever. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now I was once alive apart from the law. There was some time in Paul's life where the law didn't really come into his mind. He didn't care about it, maybe as a young child. And at some later point, it hits him hard. It hits him like a ton of bricks. It hits him like a hammer. And that he's no longer alive. When the commandment came, sin that was lying dormant there revived. It resurrected itself. And I died. The law came and it, and it smashed me. And my sin just fought all the more to disobey God. So here's the context here. The question, is the law sinful? No, Paul says. In verse 11, for sin... Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. It was sin. It wasn't the law. It was sin. Sin came. And as soon as I understood the implications of the law and I was convicted that I'm a sinner, sin came out and took advantage of that. The, the word taken opportunity is like a military base. Sin was hiding there and he would go out on missions and, and use the commandment against me. And verse 12, here's where we finish with this context. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's where he finished. Now the next question, the next section here. Again, he starts with the question, and then he's going to answer it in the following verses. This is his pattern. This is what he's been doing. This is the context. And verse 13 is the connecting verse. It connects us to what he's just said all the way up through verse 12. Verse 13, look at the question he's asking here. Is it the law's fault that I was condemned spiritually, that I'm, that I'm dead? He says, the law is good. It's actually sin that was doing the wrong, and it used the law to do it against me. However, the next question becomes, did the law, that's a good thing, did that cause death? Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, now he, he reiterates, it's sin. It's sin that brings about more sin, and it's sin that brings about death. What's the purpose of the, all of that? In order that it might be shown to be sin. Who gets shown that? I get shown that when, you, when you're an unbeliever, and you realize your sin, that's supposed to drive you to Christ. We know that we can resist until, until God has predetermined when we will come. But he says it can be shown, and it's shown to everybody. It's a testimony. Look, here's God's holy, righteous standard. You don't meet it. And it's shown that it's not God's fault, and it's not the law's fault. It's your fault for your sin. Who's to blame for your sin? You are. I am. We're each to blame for our own sin. It's sin by working out my death through that which is good. That's the law. So that through the commandments, sin would become utterly sinful. That's the idea here, to show us our sin. Paul says, may it never be. 
And he's still talking in the past tense in verse 13. It was sin that did it. So Paul is saying, the law showed me how sinful I was before I came to Christ. Verse 13, still the past tense. Still talking about this former self. Now he's going to explain the answer. The short answer is in verse 13. The question's there and the short answer's there. Now he's going to explain it starting in verse 14. So those who hold that Paul's a believer here in this passage are sometimes unsure exactly when the change happens because he's not explicitly saying that here. He's not saying that now I'm talking about my believing life. And there's disagreement on those who do think Paul is a believer here. Many take 14 as the change. Some would say a 13. Calvin thought it was in verse 15 that the change occurred. This is from the, the believing standpoint. J.I. Packer said it was way back in verse 7. The older Augustine thought that. I propose, though, that the reason it's so difficult to determine where the change happens is because there's not a change. That he's still talking about the unbeliever here, the unbelieving Paul, and he's not left that subject yet. The, the issue really isn't even about where was Paul at this time. It's about the law and the law being good and the law being holy and righteous. And we can't blame the law and we can't blame God for our sin. And Paul's using an example of himself as a pious Jew, and he describes it in very, very good detail here. So look at verse 14. How does 14 begin? We're still talking about the immediate context. We're right now into the passage. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. So now he goes into describing himself saying I in the present tense. For we know. This word for is an explanatory word, and it's in Greek and it's in English, but Greek is even more specific. For, it explains what came right before. Sometimes, occasionally, it explains what came after. This explains what came right before. What came right before. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, big explanation. That's what he's been doing. Question, may it never be. That's the short answer. Now, let me explain it. Question, may it never be. Let me explain it. Question, may it never be, let me explain it. Same thing here. Question, may it never be that, don't think that, let me explain why I say, may it never be. The word for has to be accounted for here. It's called gar in Greek, and it can't be skipped over. My reading of the commentaries, they don't address it. They simply don't address it, really either side. And that's important because that verse 14 starts with the word for to explain what he just said in verse 13. Sometimes folks will say, look, if you just take 14 through 25 and that's all you had, you would have to say this is Paul speaking of the Christian life because it's in the present tense. And I would agree if that's all we had. If it was just sitting on a piece of paper, I knew nothing about Romans, knew very little about the New Testament, and I looked at that and read, and somebody said, is this person talking about his present self or something that happened in the past? I would say, well, it sounds like present to me, if that's all we had of the book of Romans. But that's the point. You have the whole context of Romans. You have everything from Romans 1 up until this point. I would need to consider the previous context, especially what has built up to this from chapter 6. The point of context alone, I think, is enough. That's enough to sway me, because context is king when it comes to interpretation. And since Paul doesn't explicitly say, I'm changing focus here, then I have to go with what's in the context leading up to this. Secondly, the I am fleshly 
and bondage under sin in verse 14. Everyone agrees that 14 is a key verse here. It's a key verse because it comes right after the question and and the short answer. He's now explaining. And he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. Go back to 7.5. And he already mentioned the word flesh. And 7.5, for while we were in the flesh. So slightly different there, but still using the same word for flesh. In the flesh, he says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. Fruit for death. That's the unbeliever in 7.5. Now he says in 7.14, I'm fleshly. I'm fleshly. Sometimes the flesh can just be used for the human body, for the believer even, for the human body. Sometimes the flesh can be used for the carnal passions that Paul often just associate with the body. Having a human body living on this earth, even as a Christian, means that we're going to have some desires. But within the context here, in the most recent context of verse 5, I take flesh as being this sinful state that the unbeliever is in. It's a place of the flesh. It's a place of the flesh. We'll see in a minute where he also uses that same idea for flesh in chapter 8 of Romans. Let's look at this idea, sold under bondage to sin. See how he ends verse 14? Sold into bondage under sin. The phrase under is something that can be used positively, but usually it's very clear. Under grace. That's a good thing. Under Christ. Under righteousness. Under God. Those would be a positive thing to be under. But Paul regularly uses the negative under blank, under something, phrases to refer to unbelievers. Nowhere is it a negative word after the word under that refers to a believer. Let's go back to Romans 3.9. See the context of how he uses this. 3.9. And it's usually in Romans, it's under sin or under law. What then? Are we better? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He's talking about unbelievers. He's been through Romans 1, 2, and 3. And he's looked at unbelieving Gentiles and now unbelieving Jews. And he says... Everybody, before they come to Christ, everybody is under sin. Now go to 6, 14, and 15. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. So it's a bad thing to be under law. It's a bad thing to be under sin. That means that it has dominion. It's, it's ruling over you. You're under it. You're submitting to it. That's what it means. The parallel is when you're under Christ, when you're under grace. That's what you're submitting to. You're submitting to God. You're submitting to Christ. Go to chapter 8 now, and let's look at this passage. 8, 3 through 6. You'll see both the idea of the flesh and the bondage here. 8, 3. For what the law could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh. The law can't save an unbeliever. The unbeliever's in the flesh. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They are living out their fleshly desires. God did. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't actually sinful, but it was in the likeness. He took on a human body. And as offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ came in the flesh. What was the purpose? So that the righteous requirement of the law, which is what he'd just been talking about in chapter 7, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That's the unbeliever. The unbeliever walks according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, according to the Spirit. So the 
the flesh in chapter 8, which is very close context, is describing the unbeliever. And this fact that a person is under law and under sin, they're set free when they come to Christ. They're no longer under these things. Go with me now to Galatians 3. Galatians is going to be a a good cross-reference for us. And both views find their cross-references in Galatians. But Galatians 3.22, But the scripture has shut up everyone, what? Under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law comes in and it just shuts you up. It closes you in. It keeps you from going anywhere but further into sin because you react against the law. It's like a box that contains us. Everything, everyone, shut up under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus, so that people will come to to faith in Christ because that's the only way. What's the only way out of this box? To Christ. Run to Christ. Christ has made one entry point into that box that you can come out of it, and it's only through him. Look at the next verse. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law. Everyone's been shut up under sin. Everyone's been in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under sin. Under sin is describing an unbeliever. A believer still sins, and a believer still has a law and commandments to follow, but it is not over us. It is not reigning over us, and we're not under sin or under law. Look at chapter 4 of Galatians. This is good as well. Same, same terminology, 4, 1 through 5. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the day set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. This is just a description of natural law, or you could even include the Mosaic law. The elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. He's going to redeem them. He's going to bring them out from under the law and put them under him so that we might receive the adoption as son. So this is difficult language, I think, to get around. Paul has just recently made a big case in Romans 6 that the Christian is not in bondage to sin. 6, 7, Romans 6, 7, for he who has died has been justified from sin, declared righteous, no longer in, in this bondage to sin. 6, 18, and having been freed from sin, not in bondage, but freed from sin. The believer's freed from sin, not still under bondage, like Paul says in Romans 7. He says, now you're slaves of righteousness. 6.22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. So that's the second point there. The use of fleshly and bondage under sin, I think, describes an unbeliever based on all that Paul says in Romans and also in Galatians. Number three, a third reason, the prisoner of war needing to be set free. This is very strong. Under, under sin, and sold into bondage is strong. But a prisoner of war set free. Look how he describes himself here in 7, 23 and 24. <clears throat> but I see a different law in my members. So he desires to do this good, but it doesn't come out. 
Instead, it's, it's waging war against the law of my mind. It's, it's waging war. There's this war. There's this struggle going on. And it's making me captive. Making me captive to what? The law, not the Mosaic law, the law of sin. The rule, the standard of sin. That has more sway when it, when it actually comes out than the desire of the mind to do the good. To the law of sin, which is in my members. He's taken captive here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will literally set me free from that captivity? Who will deliver me from the captivity from the body of this death? Let's look at the word making me captive to the law of sin. The Greek word literally means to call someone to become a prisoner of war. When they would go and capture somebody for war, they would put them in prison. And they would either sell them to be a slave, ransom them back to their wealthy family, or eventually kill them. Figuratively, this gets used to describe when someone gains complete control over, either by force or deception, to get control of. So this captive has something controlling him. And he says he's captive to what? The law of sin. This is why he has to be set free. This is why he calls out. Who will set me free? I'm bound up under this law. And I'm bound up under sin. And I'm in captivity. I'm a prisoner of war to sin. See, the battle in Romans 7 is not this back and forth. Sometimes I actually produce good fruit. And sometimes I fall and stumble. And sometimes I produce good fruit. And it's sort of this up and down chart that goes up over time, like the stock market should, over time. Your sanctification actually looks like that if you're saved. That's not what Paul's describing here. He's saying, this is despairing. He's not saying, I feel like that. He's saying, I am a captive. The battle's not back and forth. He's not slowly gaining progress here. The battle has been fought. And he says, now I'm a prisoner of war. My fight is only left to fight in my mind. My mind fights, but my body, my actions never, never get out of this captivity. But look at the believer in Romans 8 too. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and the law of death. And Jesus said, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. There's not this freedom and then going back into bondage and freedom. No, there's freedom. And occasionally you'll look over there and say, that sin was pretty tempted. I'm, I'm going to try that one more time. And then God brings you back over and says, no way. I'm going to shock you and pull you back. You had a sinful thought. You tried to sin for a little while, but you can't go back into bondage. He has to be set free as a believer. And so why would he say, I'm in bondage? I'm in captivity. Number four, the lack of the Holy Spirit in Romans 7. The lack of the Holy Spirit, specifically in 7, 13 through 25. This is huge. I couldn't believe I'd never seen this. How many times I read the Bible, then somebody said one day, where's the Holy Spirit in this passage? Then you compare that to Romans 8. Holy Spirit's all over in Romans 8. 17 times, maybe 19. There's, there's some debate sometimes whether he's talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. But 17 to 19 times. And yet in 13 through 25 of 7, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned once, not even one passage. The next chapter, 17 plus times. So if 7 through 25 is the unbeliever, that's why there's no Holy Spirit mentioned. If you take Romans 7, starting in verse 7, all the way through the end as the unbeliever, then that would make sense. The Holy Spirit's not going to be mentioned because the Holy Spirit doesn't live and doesn't indwell the unbeliever. There's no fight to be had by the power of the Spirit because the Spirit is not there. 
But Paul does bookend this section with a mention of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So before he goes into his unbelieving life in the next verse, verse 7, he reminds the believer, we don't serve in that old way, trying to obey the law, trying to be perfect, trying to live under the law. No, we serve in the newness of the Spirit. Then he goes back into his past, all the way through that. Now he gets to chapter 8. And in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. And the whole chapter is about the spirit fighting for you and in you. You have the Holy Spirit. But the person in, in Romans 7, he attempts to obey the law, but he fails to keep God's law. He lacks the resources of the Holy Spirit. He lacks the ability to carry out God's demands. How different is that picture from Romans 8? Romans 8 is just a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Yes, there's a sin battle going on there. Praise the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And that's what Romans 8 is about. You can have assurance because of the Spirit in you. But according to 8.1 all the way through 13, those who are of the flesh are unable to keep God's law. While those who have the Holy Spirit are able to fulfill the law by the Holy Spirit's power. I think that's why Paul bookends it. He reminds them in verse 6 of chapter 7, there's the Spirit. Then he goes back for a while. And now chapter 8, he brings full force, the Holy Spirit to bear on the Christian life. Now, some will object. Well, what about verse 22? 22 seems to be some Holy Spirit working in this this man, Paul's heart. Doesn't that sound like a believer? I joyfully concur. And that came up earlier. I joyfully concur. That's one of the, the good arguments for Paul being a believer here in this passage. How can an unbeliever say, I joyfully concur with the law of God? That could be the Holy Spirit working, implied there. But look at the next verse, though. Here's the issue I have with that. Look at the next verse. I see a different law in my members. And we've gone through this, waging war. Waging war. There's no fruit coming out. The mind says, the law is good. The law is holy. A pious Jew could say that. They learned the law from a young age. What Jew is going to deny that the law of God is holy, the law of God is good, the law of God is righteous, and that we should obey it. In fact, that's how they built their whole salvation, isn't it? They say you can be saved by obeying the law. No Jew in their mind would say, I don't want to obey the law. Not not a pious Jew, not a moral Jew, not a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet, nothing comes out. No good fruit comes out in the members, in in the working out of everyday life. Paul often ties the fruit, either bad or good, to the members of the body, to the ability for your body to bring about some fruit. The unbeliever brings about bad fruit. He can't do the good fruit. And so 22 is not really helpful being the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always produces some good fruit. Remember when Jesus talked about the soils and the good soil, the good soil produces 30 and 60 and 100 fold. There's different measures that people get with the good fruit, but every believer gets some good fruit produced in their life. It just matters as to how much you resist it, that the Holy Spirit does produce fruit. Also look at verse 18. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not there. I desire it with my mind, but nothing good comes out. I don't think he's being sarcastic. He's just being real. By the way, Paul's a believer when he writes Romans, and he looks back and describes his unbelieving life. 
So he's going to use terms that categorize his unbelieving life that he would not use when he was an unbeliever. When you were an unbeliever, you did not say, I'm not justified yet, and I'm not sanctified yet. You know, I don't think Christ has paid the propitiation for me. You didn't use terms like that. Most of us didn't, unless you grew up in a church that really taught that. You didn't use words like that. But now that you look back and you give your testimony when you join the church, you're using all this great language. You're using all this good doctrine. Why? Because now you have the insight and you can look back and think about your past in the right way. That's what Paul's doing as he looks back here. But in his mind, he wanted to obey the law. And verse 18, he even says, the working out of the good is not there. Are these desires to follow the law coming from the Holy Spirit? If they are, then why is he not able to produce fruit? He talks about this in chapter 2, 17 through 23. You can read that later. But there's a Jew who wants to obey the law there, and he challenges them. You're wanting to obey it for the wrong reasons, but you don't even practice the law. You don't even actually live it out. James talks about that as well. Also, 930, let's go to chapter 9, verse 30. Look how he describes his brethren, the Jews. The Jews who know the Bible, they know God's law, they know what God commands. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. They were going after the law. They were running hard for the law. But they didn't get the actual righteousness because they didn't get it by faith. Israel talked about righteousness. The Jews said they love righteousness. Look at 10, chapter 10, verse 2. I testify about them. They have a zeal for God. He doesn't doubt they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They don't actually understand who God is because they don't have faith. It's not according to knowledge. They lack something that hasn't been given to them yet. Verse 3, for not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's what Paul was doing. He was trying to establish his own righteousness. All right, number five. The following context of Romans 8. So we looked at the context building up to this passage. We looked at some things in the passage themselves. Now what comes after it? And we've already touched on it. Romans 8. And there is a huge, huge contrast in Romans 8.1. It's even stronger in Greek. But it's strong enough in English to see. Therefore, there is now. You know what now is? It's a time stamp. He's saying, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There was condemnation before. What before? The before he was just describing. There was condemnation before because you're trying to struggle, wretched man. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it's not just now, but therefore now. Very clearly a time marker, a huge contrast. He's referring to a place in time. There's the now, and then there's then in the past. Tom Schreiner says the contrast between Romans 7, 14 through 25 and 8, 1 through 17 is so dramatic that it is difficult to believe that the experience delineated is Christian experience in both cases. Why the huge contrast? In other words, if he's talking about the Christian life and then just saying the Spirit is there to help us in, in chapter 8, there wouldn't need to be this huge contrast. It would be more of a transition that's smooth, not the past and then therefore now huge change. There's no condemnation. Why is that good news? It's good news because of verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body, the body of this death. Therefore now, then in 8.2, what does he do? He goes back and starts addressing some of the very things that were mentioned in the previous paragraph in chapter 7. 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life is in Christ Jesus. He set you free. That was a big issue, being in bondage, being under sin, being under the law. Another big issue in verse 3, the law 
We could not do it. He says, for what the law could not do, because it was through the flesh, God did. He sent his son, condemned sin in the flesh. And he just goes all the way through this first section of chapter 8, talking about a contrast between what had been described in chapter 7. For those who are according to the flesh, we read that. Their mind is set on the flesh. Their mind is set on death. The flesh is going to lead to death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. There's not to struggle with the law because in Christ, you've been freed from that. He's fulfilled everything. Those who are in the flesh can't even please God, he says in verse 8. Then in verse 9, look what he says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now look at verse 15. Where you have received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Or have you? But you have received not that. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You haven't received the spirit of slavery as a Christian. You received the, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit. Big contrast, large contrast. Eight is all about being set free, having the Holy Spirit. The flesh is behind you. It's been, it's been put to death in the sense that you're not living towards it. It's a drastic, drastic change. So those are the five I think best arguments, like I said, you could come up with five or 10, or I've heard people mention, you know, 14. John Piper preached six or seven sermons, and he had 14 reasons why he took the, the opposing view. Now go and listen to the other view. You know, be good Bereans. Don't, don't just take my word for it. All right, let's answer some objections that we posed with the other five points, answering objections to this view. So there are objections, and there's some good objections. The number one being the present tense. It's not an easy one to say, why did Paul switch? And not tell us he was switching. The regenerate view has a struggle with that. And the view that I just presented has a struggle with what is he doing with the present tense? Now, the present tense in Greek is often used to speak of the past and a few other books of the New Testament. The gospel accounts have what's called historical present. And you don't even notice them in English because the translators fix that. I use the word fix loosely. It was perfectly good Greek to talk about the past in the present tense in the gospel accounts. But in the English, that's really awkward, so they change it. And if you have an NASB, and you're reading along in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, even John, you'll see a little asterisk by the verb. Have you ever seen that asterisk by the verb in the NASB? That tells you that that's a historical present. In the original Greek, it was a present tense, but it was referring back to something that has already happened. So almost every case, the translators will then translate it as past tense for the English reader. That happens many, many times in the Gospels. What is Paul doing here? I wouldn't say he's doing the historical present. I think what Paul is doing is being very emphatic. Commentaries that take the unregenerate view think that what Paul is doing is being very emphatic. He's trying to relive the moment and put you there in the scene, just like a flashback in a movie. The movie flashes back and puts you in the present tense scene of what is going on. Here's what J Street, Dr. John Street, who we all know, his son went to seminary with him and he's continuing to study there with other degrees. He wrote in the Master Seminary Journal a few years ago and he says, here's what Paul's doing with the present tense. He says, in modern English, speakers do this well when they relate a story. And so he gives the example. Now he's going to change. Notice I'm going to read his example and he's going to change from the past to the present to make the story more vivid. So here's the story. He says, it's like this. I flew to Denver the other day. And I had a strange thing happen to me. We took off. And during the flight, one of the stewardesses began getting orders for drinks. And she comes to me, to my row, 
and I am unaware that my foot is slightly in the aisle. Then we hit some turbulence and the cart slams against my foot. You see the change in tense there to make it more lively, more emphatic. You put the listener in the scene of what's going on and it's like they're right there seeing it. So I think that's not an easy thing to deal with, the present tense, but I think that's a good explanation for it. 7.22, that's the second reason, Romans 7.22. We've already looked at joyfully. Joyfully means he knows it's the right thing to do. So we've discussed that. But he's a prisoner in jail, and he can't get out with the actual members of his body to do anything. And I think about when I worked with prisoners in L.A., I would teach them the Bible, and they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. All I'm really wanting to do, though, is not get back in jail. Well, let me tell you about Christ. Oh, I know I grew up, I grew up Roman Catholic, you know. Jehovah's Witnesses come right after you guys, and we go to that study too. And, you know, I just don't want to come back to jail because my family, my kids. So they desired the good. They desired to get off drugs, to not sell drugs, to not steal things. They desired the good, but the good, the reason they desired it, so they didn't have to come back to jail and be away from their families. And there were some people saved there in the jail, but, but many thought they were Christians and they thought if they could just be better, if they could just reform themselves, they could just do more good than bad, they could stay out of jail. And I think that's the idea Paul's getting at here in 7.22. He knows the good. And he even uses this phrase, inner man. And opponents to, to the view I propose, the, the ones who say this is regenerate Paul, they will say, look, the only two other places in the New Testament that Paul uses inner man, he refers to believers. And that is true. He describes the believer and then he uses the phrase inner man in some of his teaching. But it's never said to be something that's added to the Christian at conversion. The inner man, by definition, is just your inner self, the core of your being. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, the inner man is the spiritual side of man, or man himself insofar as he enjoys self-awareness, as he thinks and wills and feels. So the inner person for the unbeliever is the inner man who feels and thinks and wills, and he decides that he's going to sin. But he, he knows that's not good. That's the conscience. And the believer has the inner man as well because it's part of humanity. And Paul addresses that when he gets to those passages in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. But here, I think the inner person is just this conscience that knows. Disobeying the law is wrong. I need to do the right thing. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Jew. I'm supposed to do these things, but I cannot live it out. So in 722, the, the unbelieving Jew, they know the law and his conscience knows it's holy and he knows it's good, but his sinful nature, the flesh has him in bondage and will not let his conscience do what he knows is good. Of course, he would have known Psalm 1-2, that he's supposed to live out the law, but he's struggling with it. All right, the third objection here, and these are the reasons for the other view. Number three, this does not match up with what Paul says about his unbelieving days in Philippians. Let's look real quickly at Philippians 3. It doesn't match what he says there in Philippians. I think it's for a reason. Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't put confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Here are using flesh as we talk about just our human works. He says, I might have confidence. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now he describes all the good things he did as a Pharisee, or at least what he thought was good. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, you can't get any more legal than that, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is the law found blameless. 
So Paul was proud of all the good things he did. How can he say in, in chapter 7 of Romans that he was struggling, that he was struggling with this obeying the law, when in Philippians 3 and even quickly in Galatians 1, he seems to be saying that he lived out the law. But did he? Notice I said persecutor of the church. Is that actually a good thing? No, he was trying to live out what he thought was the law. I think other Pharisees would look at him and say, Paul, you were were the Pharisee of Pharisees. You win the number one gold medallion for this year's Pharisee award. You were willing to chase down those Christians and kill them. And Paul says, what he's doing here is he's saying, look, as far as works go, if works saved you, I had all the good works. His focus in Philippians 3 is about righteousness. And his focus is about if you could earn it through good works. And Paul says, I would have had a ticket to heaven. But it's not about that. He says, they're all rubbish. He ends up saying they're worthless. So outward appearances, man, he had it all going for him. But Romans 7, I propose to you, is the inward struggle of the unbelieving Jew. Not what people see on the outside, but what he knows in his heart was happening at that time. He knows the inner struggle that a moral person has with the perfect holy law of God. And he knew that he could not live up to it perfectly. And what does the unbeliever do? They try even harder. And Paul's just told us in in Romans 6 and 7 that you just end up sinning all the more. The only way is through Christ. So Paul, I think, is describing there the other people's perspective. By the way, he did speak not very highly of himself in one other place, 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. It wasn't as if he always took this positive view of his previous days when it comes to works. He says, look, actually blasphemed God in my heart. I persecuted Christians and I was a violent aggressor and that he enjoyed hurting and killing Christians. He enjoyed it. Okay, number four, this passage seems to sound like a Christian's experience with sanctification. It does. Yeah, because we struggle with sin too, don't we? There's a lot of similarities. But I think if you want to find those passages, then you go to the passages like 612 of Romans. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I'm not saying, and the people who say this is unregenerate, Paul in Romans 7, are not saying there's not a struggle in the Christian life. It's just not that passage. And Doug Moo, I think, makes a good point in his commentary. He says, look, I believe there's a Christian struggle with sin. I just don't believe that it's there at the end of Romans 7. Well, you could go to Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. You've got to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Can't wait till we get to Romans 8 and look at that verse. Let's go one more time to Galatians. Galatians 5. Now, both sides use Galatians 5, but I want you to notice something here. Here's the struggle with sin. You know know Galatians, the good fruit and the bad fruit, fruit of the spirit, right? And the fleshly fruit, there's a drastic contrast. But look at Galatians 5, 16. Here's the struggle. I say, Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see how it's very encouraging there? Romans 7 is depressing. It's very encouraging here. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. There's the Christian struggle. For these are in opposition to one another so that you do not do the things you want. But if you're led, look how he closes this little section before he goes into the deeds. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
the Christian struggle is not about being under the law. Yeah, we can be confused about the law. Sometimes you have very legalistic Christians. You have very legalistic churches. But he says that the issue is not about being under the law because you're not under the law. Focus on being led by the Spirit. All right, number five. Number five, he calls out thanks to the Lord in verse 25. We'll get to this when I'm going through the passage. So we'll look closer at it then. Either side has difficulty with this. What is he doing here? I think it's best to take it as an interjection. Paul's come to this moment of despair. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And instead of then giving a summary of what he just said, being very, very good as far as an argument goes, he's very passionate at this point. He's describing his unbelieving life. Who will save me? Who's going to set me free? He can't let the reader just go on. So he says, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Look at it with me. Romans 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Exclamation point in the LSB. He just can't wait till chapter 8. He's got to say something right now. Kind of like he did about the spirit back in verse 6 of chapter 7. Then he unwraps the spirit there in in chapter 8. He just has to let out some hope here. This is depressing, wretched man that I am. I'm in prison. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he gives the summary of what he just said. So then, that's a summary statement. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. That's a summary of what he just taught. The start of verse 25 is an interjection. He just can't contain himself with the good news. He's got to say something. It's like reading Romans 3 all the way through, and you finally get to the end of chapter 3, and you're like, praise God, Jesus Christ came to die because no one is righteous, no, not one. He quotes all these Old Testament verses. And you just think, man. I'm a wretched sinner. Praise God at the end of Romans 3, though. So why does this matter? In conclusion, why does it matter? Well, it's not going to start a new denomination. You're not going to see a lot of books on this. This is not an easy passage by any means. I've spent hours, really years, since I went to seminary. I've spent years looking at this, listening to different views. It matters for a couple of reasons, though. One is when we're studying the Bible, we want to try to get it right. And even when people disagree, God put it there for a reason. It's not confusing to God. And it wasn't confusing to Paul. And it probably wasn't confusing to the Romans and the original context. They may, they may have had some questions, but I just don't think this whole half of the chapter was confusing to them. Now, as time has gone on and we're further away from it, and there's a lot more issues, language and history and context and all that. So it matters, first of all, so we can study the Bible and get it right. And it matters to me because I'm going to preach the next couple of sermons on this passage. It's really difficult if you just say it doesn't matter. Don't pick a view. And how do you preach that text? How do you teach that text? But secondly, it also matters in the way of application. Because if you think it's the Christian struggle, then it'll be of great use in counseling. It'll be of great use to the believer as to say, look, Paul even struggled. But if you think it's the unregenerate, which is the view that I take, then you'll say, Look at what God has saved us from. Look at how wretched we were. Look at how awful we were. And look at this huge contrast in chapter 8. Thank God. Thank God. That's why it matters. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there you have it. Plenty to go home and chew on. Think about. Read your Bibles. And we'll go probably a couple of paragraphs, a couple of sermons on it. And get into the great 8, as the Puritans called it. Romans chapter 8. Let's thank the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Even when there are debates and challenges and issues to look at, it is still worthy to study. It is still worthy. I I agree with those men that say you made certain passages challenging for us so that we'll spend more time in your word and we'll work harder. So grateful, Lord, for Christ. So grateful that we have the Holy Spirit. So grateful that we're no longer 
lost to our sin, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for all that Jesus has done. Thank you, O Lord, for your grace. What a misery it would be to be under the law. But now we're under grace. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.